It is Tuesday, December 1st, and yesterday, despite numerous legal challenges from President Trump, state officials in Arizona and Wisconsin officially certified their election results, cementing Joe Biden as the next president of the United States. Welcome back to the Precious Coverage Podcast. I'm Tom Ella, and this news comes at an interesting moment for the Black Lives Matter movement in New York City. After over six months of daily protests, crowds here have finally noticeably thinned, and many protesters are unsure how to react. Is this a death knell for the movement, or simply a signal that tactics need to change? Last week on the eve of Thanksgiving, Editor-in-Chief Kevin Xavier and I sat down with Vidal Guzman, one of the leaders of a protest group here, one that deliberately chose not to name itself. We chatted with Guzman about his past at Rikers Island, where he spent extensive time in solitary confinement, what a world without police or prisons could actually look like, and what Black Lives Matter protesters and organizers should do as attendance slows, or if attendance even matters at all. All this and more coming up right now. Okay, welcome everyone into the Protest Coverage Podcast on Thanksgiving Eve. We're visiting here with Vidal Guzman of the People's March, BKA, the No Name, uh, No Leader group. And I'm also alongside my esteemed colleague, Mr. Thomas Ella. Gentlemen, how are you? I'm doing pretty well myself. Very excited to gorge myself on food tomorrow. That's good. I'm doing good. Good, Vidal. Thanks for hopping on with us. You know, obviously we chat a little bit before we started the interview, but I just want to go back and kind of rehash to a degree what brought you into activism. This is not a new development for you, obviously. First, thank you for having me. Um, I think one moment is I'll explain a little bit about my life. I actually came from a mom's who's immigrant. I'm Dominican and Salvadorian, so we know I'm Afro-Latinx. One of the things is my mom's, when she came here as an immigrant, I was... When I was four or five years old, I was homeless. Eight or nine years old, I started selling drugs with my older brother, who approximately three, three and a half years ago came home. 14, 15 years old, I became active with the gang culture. Um, and at 16, 17 years old, I was incarcerated on Rikers, tried as an adult. Um, and I came home when I was 18, got reincarcerated in 19, so I was 24. And for the past five years, I was on gang parole, and I'd just been off supervision the past year but I've been a part of the system for the past what, 13 years M- me being out there I actually uh, caught a lawsuit in 2015 against the police um, because of how much they hurt well they was harassing me um, when I was 15 14 years old um, and also at when I was 18 years old um, a lot of times people used to get quotas um, so I used to get quotas for like night cases at night that wasn't mines um, I used to get locked up for for like you know trespassing in front of my own building um and in 2015 uh, i caught a, a settlements against the police um and then a lot of y'all probably know this is my second one that's going to be coming soon um against the police but yeah that's you know majority of, of my experience brought me into this work um but i also was exposed to this work when i started working for drive change as a food truck that hires formerly incarcerated people and in 2015, I won a Vinnie Awards um, working with the best food truck in New York City. Um, and then uh, was also get, got active with the Close Rikers Island campaign. And the Close Rikers Island campaign is a campaign that's led by directly impacted people. Um, and the call came after the death of Khalid Browder. The call was four years ago on the stairs of City Hall with 50 organizations, big leaders, grassroots organ- organizers, and directly impacted people. I've been active with that campaign for four years. And last year, we won an enormous victory by um, not just closing Rikers Island, getting the city to go to 12 to four jails, um, but also winning 500 million to black and brown communities that have been impacted by them following some of the built community platform that I was a part of creating that talked to communities that have been the most harmed about what is their basic needs, collaborating with nonprofit grassroots and leadership around local communities. I'm not really new to this, but this is the reason why I got active with this work. Yeah, thank you, Vidal. Just for the audience who's not aware, quotas are kind of a precursor to stop and frisk, mm-hmm. especially in the tri-state area. You would have quotas where it could be for a traffic ticket 
uh, municipal police department has a quota that they had to hit. And essentially it means that in order for an officer to be doing his or her job or their job, they have to make sure that they are ticketing people or arresting people in this case. And that is their way to show that they're doing work during the course of their job. That has since been altered, but I wanted to drill down a little bit, Vidal, on how that felt when they did close Rikers, having been held inside of it for a period, an extended period of time, getting out, advocating to close it, and then they actually close it. What did that feel like? Oh, good. You know, like, I think last year was, it wasn't easy, right? You know, abolition is a very, very important conversation, but people throw that out there very loosely without listening to directly impacted people who have been there to actually see if what you're saying is right or, or fact checks is very important. So like last year, you know, it, it was not easy, right? We was going against a lot of different people. We was going against people who didn't believe that jails and prisons shouldn't exist. And we, I believe that too. But we, we, we know that people are still gonna be uh, remanded and that conditions are very important, right? Like, and we have not got there where remanding is over. So like, how do we actually start addressing some of the, the conversations around like what happens with people who actually are tried with violent cases like murder, right? Like, how do we actually start attacking uh, even cases who are like rape cases? How do we actually start having some serious conversations around that? And like, what we really started seeing is like, for us to keep decreasing the population in New York City, we have to start attacking the root causes of what causes people to get incarcerated in the first place. Are we, are we attacking people's mental health as a first number one thing before incarcerating someone? And because of our work, when Mayor de Blasio took office, there was 11,000 people. Right now, we're at less than 4,000 people. We are the uh, with the most biggest city in New York City, where we actually have the less people incarcerated since World War II. And like, for me, abolition is taking pillage from the system, right? And, and how do we make it, how we make sure that it doesn't exist anymore? And those are very important parts. So for myself, it's, it was very powerful to see a step but like, it's also, it was a life changing for me those, those past four years. I've been home six years, you know, like these, these past four or five years, it just been like a, every single day been a moment that I've been happy to be a part of the campaign that I've been pushing for radical change. And, and because of that, we created the table of what it means for directly impacted people. And yeah, a lot of people can look at some of the history if they want to, you know, like they can look at Vidal Guzman, like Rikers Island, and you see stuff pop up um, or look up about closing Rikers. Um, and, you know, people ever had any questions, I can send them you, even the breakdown of, of the history of how it happened last year too. So, yeah. You brought up some really interesting questions about abolition that I'd love to come back to in a second, actually, because these are, I feel like you touched on a lot of things that are kind of the hot button issues with abolition. But while we're still on the topic of Rikers and and yourself, I've always found it really interesting that you do have such a like such an involved and I mean genuinely like inspiring story. You'll tell your story in speeches and you'll share it and you clearly like own that story. Um, and I'm just curious sharing something so personal like that in public and putting it on display like that, um, like what drives you to do that and to continually put yourself out there like that? So I learned the natives used to use storytelling as a healing process or the abilities to never forget where they came from. And, and I think a lot of times, you know, the family and, and, and the lifestyle and, and how I grew up and our stories are very unique, but it's also what tells us where we came from. And I think the natives really taught us something very powerful that don't forget where you came from, you know what I'm saying? And, and keep telling people, you know, different ways of how to think and how to operate, you know? So I've been using my story to like empower and educate people and, and inspire others to do different things and think different. And it worked, you know, and, and I wanted to keep working, you know, like my story is what a lot of people in my neighborhood went through, you know what I'm saying? Like trying to sell drugs, trying to put food on the table, you know, families who has the same routes, you know what I'm saying? They didn't have no father figures, our, our role models with drug dealers, pimps, and gang members. And when all the positive people left our neighborhood, that's all we had. So I, I think, you know, our really our stories is like, it's what makes us kind of push forward 
and push our society forward. But a lot of times, you know, they, they never look at people who are incarcerated or been through the system as people who can think different. You know, when I tell my stories for everyone who, who, who's doing time too, because they was a mentor to me. You know what I'm saying? People who have 25 to life who don't have no possibilities to come home, but they're the one who are teaching someone who, how to come home. And that's a scary thought, you know, when our system kind of operates like that. You know, I looked at a lot of things and I say, like, how this country operates when it comes to violence is that, you, you know, uh, a death for a death never solves anything. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think, like, our moments of really changing our societies is by being confident of hearing each other's stories. So, like, that is what really connects everyone together. You know what I'm saying? And, and connects us to have hard conversations with each other. It's the abilities for us to listen and to understand each other and say, what can I do as a collective to make sure that doesn't happen to people around us? But then it's just like, you know, people in my hood, you know what I'm saying? People who, who, who in my neighborhood are going through the same things that I'm going through, they get to see someone like myself who been through what they've been through, who understand some of the struggles. And now like, you know, I get to talk about some of the things that I'm doing on some of the things I accomplished. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people don't know, I'm not just an entrepreneur, but an activist and I'm an author, I'm a two times author, you know, for a lot of people in my community, they feel like there is not a starting point. And I think our stories is our way to feel confident with ourselves, with our past, but to push ourselves forward and say, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. Yeah, I think it's just fascinating how far you've come. And I'm curious if there was some sort of tipping point along the way, you know, where you learned something and you just decided, you know, the road I was going down, I was, you know, I was being poisoned by society or however your take on it was, was your time inside, was there any tipping point that said like, okay, you know, I need to make changes and this is what is going to bring me to that point. Yeah. Thank you for even asking that. I think, I think for myself, you have many different moments in your life where you, you have that tipping point. Right. And I, I say this to people and people think I'm crazy. I, I say that your life flashed by you, um, not when your soul is about to leave your body, but when like when you're about to get sentenced. Your moment of actual freedom is about to be taken away from you, you know. And, and for myself, I lived in, in a violent culture my whole life because of the street organizations, because I, I, I try to put food on the table, and because I've seen a lot of things at a very, very early age. So I grew up very fast, not wanting to, you know what I'm saying? Like I have to go to school and I'm like, when it hit three, 4 PM, I'm on a block hustling. You know what I'm saying? And I'm watching, you know, I watched the errors of how the SWAT team even changed in our neighborhood and how they had actually started patrolling our neighborhoods or running through our neighborhoods from, you know, them having a truck. Now they have a, they're, now they're in a yellow bus. And, and all that experience in that at early age was very hard. And, and I think my ticking point was the role models I kept saying, the people who had 25 to life. And I remember someone saying, you know, this guy returned back to, you know, he got reincarcerated. This is third time being in the same facility. He said, he's like, I don't know what's wrong with people. They're scared to hear no. When you hear many no's, keep going. Cause you know, once sooner or later you hear that yes. And I really stuck to that, right? And, and for me, I spent two and a half years in, in solitary confinement and my second to last time, I, I had a, a real woke moment where I had someone right next to me who was over 60 years old. And I had someone right next to me who was 18 years old, who was doing 25 to life. The person who's 60 years old, been through a system their whole life. And, and I was like, what do I wanna do? What's the real change I wanna be a part of? What's my legacy, right? And I had to ask myself that because I was losing a lot of friends while I'm in solitary confinement. You know, I'm losing a lot of love, you know, uh, loved ones. What got me here? What's next? And where am I going? Yeah, life is just going by me. Time is going by me. And the scariest thing is like, I watch out the window and the train moves when they want to. And I was like asking myself, how the fuck can a train be more free than a person? And I said, you know what? I can't let society or the system actually control or, or control the way that I think I operate. And, and I got a tattoo on me that says, you can lock my body, but you can't lock my soul. And that was a real like important quote that I, I told myself. And I said, you know what? That was the moment there. Like I, I just said, I'm coming out here and I don't, I don't know what it is I'm gonna do, but I'm gonna just, I'm gonna give him 130%. So when I came home, I, I first 
was getting into the bodybuilding and the personal training thing. And I stopped that and I got more involved with the drive change. And I was like, you know what? I just gave him 130%. You know, I was working 60 hours and I was like, you know what I'm saying? I was in a moment where like I had to change my whole thinking and stuff like that. One of the things that I'm, I'm actually curious about is, I mean, you went into solitary confinement you spent a lot of time there, obviously. And I mean, there's like, I guess with prison, there is a cruel versus effective. Um, and obviously when we're talking about recidivism and abolition, we have to figure out ways to make sure that people don't repeat behaviors. And you obviously are like a model of someone who has not, who has come out and turned your life around and you were in solitary confinement. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on solitary confinement and as it relates to our current prison system and abolition as a whole. Yeah, I think we asked ourselves, do you think that solitary confinement should exist for anyone? Um, imagine right now the pandemic has impacted so many people, you know what I'm saying? And it, it increased people taking their own life. I remember when the pandemic was happening, I was getting calls from like radio stations from London and Canada to talk to their audience about how can someone who's been in solitary confinement can teach someone how to stay home. There's different layers of solitary confinement. They have the S block, where the S block is where you're getting prepared to go into solitary confinement. And sometimes in the S block where you don't even have books, you would think about whenever your time or your meal comes, is that's when you figure out that uh, whatever time it is. And it was created to give people time off to think about some of the consequences. And even how you look at the UN when they say like, someone should only be there for 15 days. The problem is with our society is that one, they have not figured out how to interact with people when violence happens. And the question becomes, what programs do you have there? So violence does not exist. Two, what exactly are you giving people resources to make sure they don't come back? Solitary confinement never solves anything. What it does is it keeps the pattern of violence still happening. We always been calling. If you look at our demands, we've always been saying end solitary confinement. You know, that was something as a collective when we was out there organizing, we were telling people when you phone back, call your city council member and tell them to end solitary confinement. You know, and, and right now it's, it's called hot solitary. People should not be in this space. People should not be in a place where they're not able to be a human, not able to exercise their abilities to think, to operate. So, yeah, I think, Tom, I think, did I did I forget it? You asked me two questions in one. That's uh, why I'm really first not- First one was just how um, how are you keeping sane? Like what like what is the process when you're actually in solitary? Because I think a lot of people with the pandemic, a lot of people are getting just like a taste of like the easiest solitary confinement they've ever, they'll ever experience. Yeah. And like you said, it's causing mass uh, depression and, and suicide rates going up. But when you're actually in like a real solitary confinement where you're just in that that four by six cell, like what do you how do you keep yourself read? Yeah. You read yeah. yeah, definitely. I think I think reading is very powerful because it's like for people in solitary confinement, you have to be able to kind of like be in these characters too. And it's and, and it's like this childhood way of thinking, you know what I'm saying? So you don't really lose yourself. You know, and, and and for me, this is something that happens with a lot of people who've been in solitary confinement. When they read a book, it's like, I'm that character. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like, you you look around you, you're just looking at a gray wall, white wall, or whatever wall it is. And you're looking at, like, you, you're hearing people all day. You're basically trying to figure out how not to lose yourself. And, and you know, in solitary confinement, I also even learn how to take bird baths. You know, where basically you're going on a sink and you're cleaning yourself. You know what I'm saying? And, and these are like, if you ever, ever in a human being, as a human being, smelled your your, your most worst, it is, it is in solitary confinement. And then a lot of these correctional officers can bring what's happening at home to work. These are things that we have to think about. And, and when I think about like, you know, when we look at like abolition or the abilities of ending solitary confinement, it's like, you can end solitary confinement. They are doing it for youth. It's important for us to start attacking violence as a health crisis. We're doing it in New York where the cure of violence and credible messaging people are, are attacking violence as a health crisis. They can, do it in, they can do this in our jail system. A lot of times fights and riots and wars happens in our jail system because of rumors. Yeah, I was going to ask, Vidal, what books were you reading? Uh, 
Yeah, I can I can get people a list, but um, I would say with people, a lot of it was studies. Um, a lot of it was the abilities to read about our ancestors, right? A lot of the Malcolm X books, a lot of the consciousness book, a lot of people who were spiritually finding themselves, were spiritually empowering themselves. So a lot of philosophers uh, was people I was really like listening to, running to individuals who was expressing themselves to like humor. I mean, like, I, I think when you're in solitary confinement, you're just reading everything. You know what I'm saying? You're just not trying to lose your mind. And that's like the scariest thing. And sometimes you don't, you, to be really truthful with you, when the book libraries come out, they're not even handed by, sometimes facilities are different. Sometimes people are, are individuals who are handing out the books or correctional officers. And when you got a correctional officer, you only got 10 seconds. You know what I'm saying? Pick your book, hurry the fuck up. You feel me? So you're just picking whatever, you know, and you know, whatever you pick, that's what you're gonna read. And sometimes it might not even, it might not be something you want to read, but it's like, what do you want to do? You know, and what you do is like, you fish for books, right? Like someone who's right next to you, you create a fishing where you have a hole under the door and you create like a string to tie the books so we can exchange books and stuff like that. And uh, some, a lot of times people don't know, people who is in solitary confinement, we learn how to fish a lot. You know what I'm saying? How to get stuff to us, papers to us, you know, um, anything that we needed to us. An unbelievable experience. And um, again, one that a lot of us are never going to have to endure. So just thank you again for your courage, for expressing this stuff and coming on, you know, because a lot of people have heard your story, right? There's a lot of people in the country in New York City, a lot of people who probably listen to this when it comes out, who say, see, the system works. (sighs) Look at him. He's an entrepreneur. He's taking care of himself. He's taking care of his family. He's come a long way. He's an agent of change. Look what <laughs> the system did. Yeah, I, I'll push against that, you know, because it wasn't the system that actually prepared me for that. It was individuals who was in there. For me, the biggest help was reentry programs that helped me to return back to society. And like individuals who understood the roots and the routes that I went through and taught me how to return back to society. You know, abolition, uh, you know, there's a couple moments that I have, I have to talk about it. Abolition is, is many different layers. The abolition is to change your, your thinking about like what it means for a world to look in a more healthier way and treat people as human beings, right? And then the second layer of it is like to spiritually, you know, look at abolition as, as the way of gold and as a way of finding uh, the true liberation of people. You have to really feel the spirit of people who have been struggling all the, their whole life and, they, and say, you know what, our ancestors, uh, and I always speak about that, our ancestors are keep pushing us forward. And the third part is the physical work. You know what I'm saying? Where you have to do the work and teach people about what it means to look at abolition as a goal, but teach people that I understand that, you know, we all doing this work in different way, but our goal has always been to give our people and the black liberation of our people. You know, Black Lives Matter is about the black liberation, the abilities for us to be free, for us to move around, to, to have the ability to have all the resources that we want. Abolition is philosophers. This country was created on philosophy thinking. You know what I'm saying? Before this country was actually even created, there was philosophers who was actually thinking about what this country could have been like or what, what, what a place could have looked like. And abolition, modern day abolition right now, we are philosophers. We are trying to change the thinking of people, not just from the streets, but from local office, from our community, and even from our own household to say, what does a community look like to have more resources in? What does a community look like if we meet people's basic needs from the front and the back? And and how do we actually keep lowering our residual rate as low as possible but making sure that we level our resources and making sure that we're getting the real, real needs that our community needs. I'll tell you the truth, like whoever's saying that is not thinking of the system as a whole. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I hope that person gets to think further because it's like now that person probably don't understand why we're marching. And, and I hope that person actually looks and say, why they're marching on the local side? Oh, they want to pass policies that protect them, you know, on the local and state as like ending qualified immunity, ending solitary confinement, you know, investing in communities, you know, and, and so maybe you have not asked the right question and maybe you have not researched um, some of these answers that you already know. 
further your thinking and saying, what does a world looks like where we are living peacefully? So we all modern day philosophers and pushing people to think different. Abolition, as, as I've come to understand it, is, as you mentioned, is about thinking differently about how we deal with justice and, and trying to figure out the root cause of why a crime is committed rather than punishing reactively. You're being proactive and preventing the crime from happening at all. But there is sort of brick wall that I feel like a lot of people, including myself, sometimes when I think about a lot of this stuff, get to where like we live in a world where everyone has all of their basic needs met and everyone is pretty free to do pretty much whatever they want. Um, there's still like, I feel like something innately in human nature where you're still going to have somebody who, let's say, murders someone or rapes someone or does some sort of crime. And the question I feel like with abolition always comes back to, and, and it's always, I feel like the most common question that everyone has is like, well, what do you do with like a serial killer? What do you do with someone who doesn't want to be rehabilitated or the rehabilitation doesn't work? What do we yeah. do with someone like that in a world where we've abolished police and prisons? Easy. How do we actually isolate that person until that person is prepared or till we feel as a society that person is prepared to come home? Or even maybe it might never be a, a time for that person to ever come home. And that's the true reality of some of our, our work. You know, like we have to, but we have to push further and get to the layers of, of issues. And if we don't get there, we won't never be able to kind of answer them questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm- I'm curious what your thoughts are on isolation or like isolating someone through abolition. What is the role of punishment or, or like what, what, what does isolating someone look like in that kind of system? Or based better separating someone from the public. Right. Sure. I, I think, I think there is a moment of like someone being more active in that process of someone who has mental health uh, backgrounds, right. Who has a role in therapy, counseling um, and understand some of the, important conversation of, of dealing with people who have been around that background. I'll also be saying like the space and the area that that existing place is, that's a very important part. Like what exactly are you, what are their day-by-day process, right? Like what are you exactly doing to meet people's basic needs or on basically like how are you helping me to think different, right? And like we look at like how the prison and jail system kind of operates it never operates a how can I think different, right? You know, our jail and prisons operate as how can I keep you here and, and, and you do your time and you're gone, you know what I'm saying? And it never been like that. Like if you look at some of, you know, I've been around people who did a lot of time, right? Like people who had 25 to life. And, and one of the things that I learned is like, we have to start tagging violence from a health crisis. And I think, a lot of times people don't talk about how science and white supremacy kind of shaped the way that we think about now around violence and how violence is there. There's this false idea that a lot of these politicians use between the nonviolent and violent conversation. Uh, we should be treating violence as a health crisis. And when I look at that, what I mean by that is like, how do we actually talk to someone and have some real critical conversations and, and critical moments meeting these person's needs so if there is a process for the person to return back to society, they do return back to society. If they, they, they don't, they don't. You know, when you look at in Norway where um, guy who, you know, took 22 lives, the family was asked how much time do they, they think that person should get. And the most that that person got was 24, 22 years. And, and the reason why they said that much time, they asked them, you know, when we look at how America, um, you know, system is and how like Norway and Germany, like people get mad at Norway and Germany criminal justice system, but then like no one gets mad at America's criminal justice system. There's a certain point of how active Norway and Germany is with the community, right? Like there's no nonprofits that are booming in Norway, like it's booming in New- in America, you know what I'm saying? And you have to ask yourself that it's because they're thinking of people first before anything. And everything always been about money. Like anytime, you know, that's why people was going crazy saying when you do the censors, make sure if you have someone who is incarcerated upstate that you are including them in your census. You know what I'm saying? Because people don't know, like anytime someone who was incarcerated in Norway, in, let's say in Albany, and, and, and that person is looked at living in that neighborhood or in that, in that town. So that town would get this much taxes because that person's living there. You know what I'm saying? And like, 
when we look at how you know the prison system has started booming let's start talking about it right like you know we know how the system we know how it operates the 13th amendment we always been calling for abilities to get reworded the same way it has been re- reworded in north, in north carolina and other different places and the reason why i go to this and, and he's like give me the answer it's like bro like we just got to be able to meet people's basic needs and the way that our system is operating is not doing that if you want to look at how successful system is we have to look at somewhat how the Norway, Norway and Germany model kind of works, but then keep thinking and furthering our, 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 our process and our, and our conscience and our you know, philosophy farther than that. But they're, they're already doing the, the groundwork. You know what I'm saying? They know they're not sending people with mental health to incarceration, but Buffalo, we have the most people in the most jail system and the biggest mental health in jail system in Buffalo. Like... Let's start. Two, counseling therapy is 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 increased and and used mostly in Norway and Germany. It's not used here, so you have someone who's one person who's representing two hundred people. You know what I'm saying? I think we we we're we're doing this backwards. And, and when it comes to the people that we want to help out who are serial killers or people who are have like real serious problems, is that we're we're doing it all wrong we're not meeting people's basic needs from their neighborhoods like how can someone walk and say i have some mental problems i need help with no one can go to someone like that because no one knows and that's a problem we need more accessible places that people can say i have some problems going on and i need to talk to someone yeah and i you know and you you've always mentioned this every time i've seen you speak every time i've spoken to you you've always said that liberation starts here and I'm pointing to my head and there's so many social constructs. Tom was talking about our collective vision of prison and obviously it looks different in Norway and other places in the world and while we're on this topic we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on it. We are on Thanksgiving Eve. Tomorrow is a day that will be celebrated regardless especially in this climate of COVID and uh, what's going on in the world in 2020 in general. I'm just curious, you've been pretty outspoken about your thoughts on the holiday, and I'd like you to share your thoughts with our audience. Yeah, I mean, I mean there's nothing that I can have people change their thinking about Thanksgiving, but I will say to people that th- even if it falls on the same day, you can change the name. I think we, we have really gave the Thanksgiving name and the Thanksgiving thinking without knowing the real history and especially for people who are natives, you know, I have Taino blood running through me and African blood running through me. And I see this happen. So I tell the people all the time, like, encourage yourself to, to really do your research. You know what I'm saying? I'm not here to tell you when not to celebrate and how to celebrate. I just ask you to be more conscious and, and, and wake yourself up from, a, you know, something that you're so used to. You know, and, and maybe this is a real moment where you start asking yourself, what is a real revolution for yourself? So I ask you, you know, as you're celebrating, think of a name while you're with your family. Like, what should we call this day? You know, is it something that is it an aunt or a grandma that you lost that you want to name it? You know, like uh, Aunt BB, you know what I'm saying? I'm just throwing a name out there on aunt, aunt something where you call it that day. I think we had so been including so stuck into like oh everyone else is celebrating i need to celebrate nah make it your day and, and that's what like you know as we celebrate and what however you celebrate you know like i ask you to just do your research you know what i'm saying and, and i get it you know it's hard because you have memories behind this holiday but i ask yourself is like if someone else's memories won't be like yours. You know what I'm saying? It's like someone else's memories at their kitchen tables is talking about their ancestors and, and talking about how their ancestors took away from them, you know? And as a human, no matter what color or race we are, we are the same struggle. We, we bleed the same. And no matter like if we struggle together, we are our own countrymen, right? You know, this is our country. And how we shape this country is we our own define, our own definition, our own philosophy. So I ask yourself as you celebrate this holiday tomorrow is that you think about your memories with your family and say, you know what, let's name this a different day for us. So enjoy.
I mean, like a lot of holidays that we have in America, like Columbus Day or something, it's um, mm-hmm. where, you know, you grow up and Columbus is just this guy who, you know, you get a little, cute little rhyme about him, but you don't really know the actual sort of gruesome history of that person. And then with Thanksgiving, you know, we all think of like the Indians and the pilgrims. And I mean, we call, literally were calling them Indians instead of Native Americans. And like the world has changed so much, even since when I was a kid, like there's still so much attachment to some of these almost like myths because they're not true. Like, right. yeah. And to your point, Tom, I, I mean, they're still teaching in schools, you know, lessons are like the pros and cons of slavery. Like those are activities that are still happening right now at a distance, maybe, but they're still in the curriculums. And these are some of the constructs of it all that obviously you've spoken about quite a few times. My last question, you know, there's been obviously a slowdown in the movement in New York City in particular. Some folks are taking mental health time. Some folks are distancing themselves to keep them safe because of the virus that is killing people every day. Where's the movement, you know, in three months? And what does the movement need to do to, to accomplish its goals to yeah. maintain the momentum of the everyday people who are out there marching? Yeah, I mean, that's a many layer question. And I would say to myself for individual groups, they should figure out like what exactly is their goal for their community if they're only serving a community or are they serving the whole New York City or your national? Are there any community fridges around here? Are we meeting meeting people's food insecurity? Like what demands and what policies are existing? How do we uh, uh, help to be a part of that? A lot of these nonprofits right now are looking for, or a lot of these uh, activists are looking for a lot of help. So I ask you to, to ask yourself that question, but you know, we need a win. We was a major part of passing repeal 58, passing some of these, like the ending the chokehold, right? Like we, we was very important to push that conversation and we have to take that, that beauty and that, and that victory because we was all a part of that, every single person. But like, <clears throat> what is the next win? You know, like what is something that people can say like, yes, you know, and, and, and I think it's hard because this is this never happened in New York. What I say for us is to pass ending qualified immunity. Everyone in the city should be one chaining yourself to the governor, the governor's building. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, getting yourself locked up like this is our loophole. Our ability to pass something is happening. And the elected officials from the local and state are listening. So. As we, as a collective, are thinking about the next people who's going to get into office, let's not forget some of the people that's already in office. And for us, and I'll tell people, and I'm going to run it down because I think it's important for people to remember, call your elected official, local and state. On the state side right now, Parker is leading the ending qualified immunity, elderly paroled, less is more, fair and timely paroled, the Hot Solitary Confinement Act, repeal the walking while trends bend. I say all these policies because these are things that helps our people be free or not be in the system. And I have to tell people this because I think abolition has to also, and it will is, and it always existed in policies. And, and I want to tell people that our next goal for in three, four months, putting more community fridges in the community, um, empowering the community consciousness to get more involved. And I'll be truthful, there's a lot of communities that are black and brown people that are living there, but there's no leadership, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying leadership that people need a leadership, but there should be someone saying, I need to do something. As a collective, we shouldn't be losing hope. We, sh- we, we should understand like the revolution was never gonna be easy, but it's our goal to keep pushing the conversation. At the end of the day, like, and when we look at Hong Kong right now, you know what I'm saying? Like the main, main organizers are doing jail time now, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and some of the things is because they knew that their time, when, when stuff ends, other stuff happens. And like, those are the real conversation that kind of spread and, and changed the real revolution. And I think this is the most dangerous work, you know what I'm saying? It's always going to be dangerous. But I tell people all the time, like, as long as you believe in yourself, as long as you have your own individual goal of what you want your community to look like, that's the way that our community will look like. But 
remember when we interviewed Hawk and Shavana Newsom um, of Black Lives Matter Greater New York. I mean, they've been doing this for years and, and they definitely had like a, not a warning, but like a, almost like a premonition that like, hey, like when, especially when winter comes, all these people, these big crowds you see, they're going to dry up. And like a lot of people are going to essentially have almost like a withdrawal reaction to that. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's that's really interesting because they were the people that were like, three people shutting down a bridge or something by themselves. Yeah. And now we're kind of looking at that happening in real time. And it's, I think it's, it's frustrating a lot of the activists on the ground to see the crowds drying up, but I'm, I'm actually curious, especially when we're talking about something like ending qualified immunity, which how important are the crowds and the numbers out in public, especially as those crowds start to get smaller and the weather gets worse. I mean, listen, you don't need a crowd to push the agenda. Like, I, I think a lot of times people like, I'm an organizer. Your goal as an organizer is to always keep a crowd around you. It's always going to happen. You know what I'm saying? I've been new this from the beginning when we started this. That this crowd is not going to, it's not going to be forever. Like, I was, if, if you, a lot of people look at some of these videos and like people catching videos, there was like tens of thousands of people behind people. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and when I, like, when I got out in the streets, it was 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. Like, it was crazy. I'm just throwing a crazy number out there. And, and, and for myself, like, I knew this was going to dry out. So, like, what did I do as an individual organizer? I said, well, my community needs to figure out what community is hitting, is being hit the most. So I, I already knew this was going to happen. That's why, I, you know, that's why it was always important to reach out to local leadership from Bushwick, local leadership from Red, from Red Hook, you know, local leadership from Harlem, local leadership from the Bronx, because we knew that, you know, the organizing rallying is going to end. The goal was to keep doing community work. And like, how do you keep doing community work? Community fridges, making sure you're doing like youth events, making sure you're doing events like these, where you're having panels to keep people having conversation. And then also like, I just knew this was going to happen. Like I, I wasn't, there was no point where I was like looking at the crowd is always going to be this big. It was like, as an organizer, I was telling the rest of the team, like, what is next? Because this is all going to die out. Like that's, that's the number one thing where when it's like 60, 70 of us or, or, or 30, 40 of us in a room, like we are, we're like, this is going to die out. What is next? You know what I'm saying? And, and like what's being frustrated for a lot of people is that you got to go back to the scratching board. And that means organizational-wise, individually-wise, and say, like, what exactly are you, what you want to push, right? Like, right now, ending qualified immunity is what brings, will bring everyone back out, you know what I'm saying? And, like, it's our goal to say, yo, ending qualified immunity will always, will always, it was always a part of the, the process, right? But for a lot of youth organizers, don't get mad, man, like, that's that's a part of all of that. Like that happened with the closed Rikers campaign, and we just like slugged off and, and we started hitting the ground. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what organizing is about. Organizing is not about just marching and rallying. Anyone can do that. That is not an activist. That is not an organizer. You know what I'm saying? Anyone can grab a mic and start screaming "Black Lives Matter" like all day. That don't mean anything. That you, you remember either you're playing checkers or chess. And that's a real important part for every organizer and anyone that's out there needs to ask himself, if you're going to play checkers, you're not liberating our people. If you're going to play chess, let's play chess. You know, we knew this was, this was going to happen. So for anyone who stayed home, what, what can you do while you're staying home? Call your elected official every single day and say, pass ending qualified immunity. How can you become a co-sponsor? I, I tell people this right now. Your Senate and Assembly right now. Uh, Senator Parker is looking for a lot of people co- to co-sponsor. Force your elected official who works for you to become a co-sponsor of ending qualified immunity. I, I feel bad because it's like, I want to say more, but I, I just not like, we all knew this was going to happen. And like a, a, a lot of us, you know what I'm saying? And, and like, especially like the people I organized with, we knew this was going to happen. You know what I'm saying? And the question becomes is like, how as an individual do you step into this work, right? Like, what are you going to do? Like the crowd stop. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. And I think that's that. I think that's important. Another recent development uh, news story that came across last night, Hudson County, uh, they heard 10 hours of testimony as to whether or not they should renew their contract with ICE for 10 years. And they renewed that contract. Uh, just your thoughts on that recent development. 
Yeah, I mean, you got to go back to the scratching board. And that means for the New Jersey individuals who are doing the Black Lives Matter work or doing the ending ICE, right? When you are, are hit with a, a major, like, I don't want to call it a major loss like that. When you hit with, with reality and say, yo, what do we need to do? I think that's the important part. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it's, it's, it's bad. As Joe Biden is being put into place, I think it's hopefully we need to keep pushing um, to make sure the agenda of ending ICE is on his agenda. Um, and like that 10 year would probably not even even count if he ends it. So, yeah, it's hard because it's like New York City relying on, on, the, on the Ferguson model of empowering our community can be used anywhere else. You know what I'm saying? Like, how can you empower your local community? I, I, I say for the New Jersey people who keep fighting. Today has been kind of, it's been a weird emotional reaction for me, um, especially just knowing that it's it's now six months since George Floyd was murdered and that kicked off this worldwide yeah. movement. I, I'd love to know what your reaction is now, like six months later from that uh, murder or, you know, alleged murder, um, like what your thoughts or reactions are to that? I don't know. I'm, it's hard to kind of explain that, right? Like to, to kind of explain, you know, I haven't watched the video. So like, I, I don't think I still haven't watched and I won't. Mm-hmm. I don't need to traumatize myself. I'm yeah. a brutality survivor. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't need to <clears throat> look at some of that stuff and say, you know, oh man, like I, I know he was lynched and in daylight you know i i think the 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 hardest thing is like i'm not going to give you sound like oh why is this still happening because it's like it's we have to keep fighting you know what i'm saying and, and and the hardest thing about it is is that people who have been been the most oppressed has known like this is never going to be easy you know what i'm saying and and, and it's hard and hard to say like you know seeing some of our people getting killed left and right by police it's hard right like I, I can't sometimes I can't even watch it you know what I'm saying and a lot of times there's a lot of us who are not out there saying you know like uh, moving these crowds or saying Black Lives Matter some of us really survived this you know what I'm saying been hands put on lawsuits against them you know what I'm saying I think the hardest thing is saying like everyone has their individual way of, of healing and like I think the gold when I see this in six months, I, I say like, we got to keep fighting, you know, like for everyone, it, it, it means every single person that we lost um, in the system, every single person that we lost to poverty, like all this, the way that we live in right now was created by white supremacy. The way that our communities have been underfunded, the way that our, you know, George Floyd is not the first and he's, he's gonna be in the minis. And that is the heartful, that hurts to even say that. But it's saying like, we have to keep fighting to pass policies that protect us. And you have to think about it. We have to create policies for people that we, we are taxpayer paying for to work, to not kill us. And, and, and it's sad to say it like that, but it's true. So like, you know, the six months where seeing the many different people who was killed by police, not just in America, because, you know, I'm having conversation with, you know, advocates in London and France, you know what I'm saying, and, and other uh, Latin countries that have, you know, that has Black leadership. Um, and, and a lot of it's the same everywhere, you know, like, you know, people are getting killed everywhere. It's just how the, like, how the media kind of portrayed or, or how the people kind of portrayed because I know this is not an individual leadership problem. This is an international problem where people of color, especially Black people, are getting killed by police. No matter who, the police can even be Black themselves. And I think there's a moment like this six months, hopefully it woke a lot of other people who haven't woke up. But this six months, we got to keep fighting, you know, and, and the young, young generation, the young people that's around me and the young people that keep leading, we're going to be good. We gonna be good, you know what I'm saying? And 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 uh, I tell you the truth, you know, like if anyone who's kind of listening to this, like I'm an organizer, I'm the people organizer. I like, really love my hood. I love building in my neighborhood, and I want my people to know like their their rights. You know what I'm saying? To know if a cop stopped them, how to interact with police. You know what I'm saying? If cops put hands on you, that's a fucking lawsuit. You know 
it, these six months is it was a learning curve for myself for people around us the city internationally but as a you know Malcolm X said it the most you know what I'm saying he said like this is an international problem and for us to really start getting some world changes the CDC has been saying that that racism should be tried that racism should be tried a disease that should be a law federally passed you know what I'm saying? And then all these 6,000 statues that exist with white supremacy should be uh, broken down. And from the federal level, our school system needs to change the way that our history is being told. Um, and I say that this six months, just keep fighting for people who have gave up and, and just like, I don't want to deal with organizers. Do your work. Our job is never going to be easy. You know what I'm saying? And like, we got to remember, we like, as leadership, keep doing the work. You know what I'm saying? So like, when I think about George Floyd, I think about the many different other people's that life is not being talked about. And I'm not saying that their life is more important than other. I'm saying that, you know, there's black lives being killed and took internationally. And me speaking to international leadership, they know like this is the problem is white supremacy. And like people are pushing back against white supremacy in all different ways. And that was because of you. You know what I'm saying? A lot of these people resisting and getting up and waking up and, and fighting and, and unifying was because of people like us every single day waking up and, and filming because people are seeing that there's this young kid in Mexico who's calling their neighborhood and say, yo, there's some policy that was passed, but I'm seeing my cousin, he's he's joining the marches in Cali and New York. Everything is a domino effect to everything. So I say to everyone, and I'm, I'm sorry to take the last of this minute, um, is that, you know, the six months, we are a part of something bigger and like everything we do, every organizing, every rally, every speech, every conversation we had is a moment that we changed the world that way we want it. So like, you know, George Floyd is like so many of him, you know what I'm saying? And like, there's many that who was traumatized by police and they're here leading and empowering the community. And I hope every single day we keep doing that. So for people who, who kind of like gave up You'll be back because we're going to keep fighting for ending qualified immunity and I'll be out there soon. So like, and no matter how many numbers we have, it's how, how we use each other's abilities of what we can do is what makes real change. Thank so, you, Vidal. We really appreciate you taking the time. All right, man. Y'all be safe. All right. Yeah, you too. Right, Thank, you, Thank you, Vidal. Thank you, Vidal.